Martyr, Part Three of Five Stories by Alan Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Early evening, as the plane dropped him off in New York Crater and picked up another charter, two cold eggs and some scalding coffee, eaten standing at the airport counter, great for the stomach, but there wasn't time to stop. Anyway, Dan's stomach wasn't in the mood for dim lights and pale wine. Not just this minute. Questions howling through his mind. The knowledge that he had made the one Class A blunder of his thirty years in politics this last half day. A miscalculation of man. He should have known about Mackenzie, at least suspected. Mackenzie was getting old. He wanted a retread, and wanted it badly. Before, he had planned to get it through Dan. Then something changed his mind, and he decided Reinhardt would end up on top. Why? Armstrong's suicide, of course. Pretty good proof that even Reinhardt hadn't known it was a suicide. If Carl had brought back evidence of murder, Dan would win, Mackenzie thought. But evidence of suicide, it was shaky. Walt Reinhardt had his hooks in too deep. They piped down the fifteen-minute warning for the Washington jet. Dan gulped down the last of his coffee and found a visa phone booth with a scrambler in working order. Two calls. The first one to Jean, to line up round-the-clock guards for Peter Goldwyn's widow on Long Island. Jean couldn't keep surprise out of her voice. Dan grunted and didn't elaborate. Just get them out of there. Then a call to locate Carl. He chewed his cigar nervously. Two minutes of waiting while they called Carl from wherever he was. Then— I just saw Mackenzie. I found him hiding in Reinhardt's hip pocket. Jesus, Dan, we've got to have time. We've got it. But the price was very steep, son. Silence. Then as Carl peered at him, finally. I see. If I hadn't been in such a hurry, if I'd only thought it out. Dan said miserably. It was an awful error. And all mine, too. Well, don't go out and shoot yourself yet. I suppose it had to happen sooner or later. What about Mother? She'll be perfectly safe. They won't get within a mile of her. Look, son, is Fisher doing all right? Carl nodded. I talked to him an hour ago. He'll be ready for you tomorrow night, he thinks. Sober? Sober and mad. He's the right guy for the job. Worried lines deepened on Golden's forehead. Everything's okay? Reinhardt won't dare. I scared him. He'd almost forgotten. Everything's fine. Dan rang off, scowling. He wished he was as sure as he sounded. Reinhardt's back was to the wall now. Dan wasn't too sure he liked it that way. An hour later he was in Washington, and Jean was dragging him into the Volta. If you don't sleep now, I'll have to put you to sleep. Now shut up while I drive you home. A soft bed. Darkness. Escape. When had he slept last? It was heaven. He slept the clock around, which he had not intended, and caught the next night jet to Las Vegas, which he had intended. There was some delay with the passenger list after he had gone aboard, a flight of some sort, and the jet took off four minutes late. Dan slept again, fitfully. Somebody slid into the adjoining seat. Well, good old Dan Fowler, a gaunt, frantic-looking man, with skin like cracked parchment across his high cheekbones and a pair of carotene eyes looking down at Dan. If death should walk in human flesh, Dan thought, it would look like John Tyndall. "'What do you want, Moses?' "'Just drop by to chat,' said Tyndall. "'You're heading for Las Vegas, eh? 
"'Why?' Dan jerked, fumbled for the upright button. "'I like the climate out there. If you want to talk, talk, and get it over with.' Tyndall lifted a narrow foot, and gave the recline button a sharp jab, dumping the senator back against the seat. "'You're on to something. I can smell it cooking, and I want my share right now.' Dan stared into the gaunt face, and burst out laughing. He had never actually been so close to John Tyndall before, and he did not like the smell, which had brought on the laugh. But he knew all about Tyndall, more than Tyndall himself knew, probably. He could even remember the early rallies Tyndall had led, feeding on the fears and suspicions and nasty rumors grown up in the early days. It was evil, they had said. This was not God's way. This was man's way. As evil as man was evil. If God had wanted man to live a thousand years, he would have given him such a body. Or, they'll use it for a tool, political football. They'll buy it and sell with it. They'll make a call of it. They're doing it right now. Look at Walter Reinhardt. Did you hear about his scheme? To keep it down to five hundred a year? They'll make themselves a ruling class, an immortal elite, with Reinhardt for their black pope. Better that nobody should have it or immortality eh? Huh? but what kind you hear what happened to harvey tatum that's right the jet car man big business he was one of their noble ten they're always bragging about but they say he had to have special drugs every night that he had changed that's right if he didn't get these drugs see he'd go mad and try to suck blood and butcher up children oh they didn't dare publish it had to put him out of the way quietly but my brother-in-law was down in Lancaster one night when all it really needed was the man and one day there was Moses Tyndall the leader of the new crusade for God small at first but the ad men began supporting him broadcasting his rallies playing him up big abolished rejuvenation it's a plot against man's immortal soul amen then the insurance people came along with money the ad men and the insurance people weren't too concerned about man's immortal soul they take their share now thanks but this didn't bother tyndall too much misguided but they were on god's side he prayed for them so they gave tyndall the first abolitionist seat in the senate in twenty one twenty four just nine years ago and the fight between reinhardt and dan fowler that was brewing even then had turned into a three-cornered fight dan grinned up at tyndall and said go away john don't bother me you've got something tyndall snarled what is this damn shadow of yours nosing around tenors for why the sudden leaping interest in nevada two trips in three days what are you tracking down why on earth should i tell you anything holy man the parchment face wrinkled unpleasantly because it would be very smart that's why reinhardt's out of it now washed up finished thanks to you but now it's just you or me, one or the other. You're in the way, and you're going to be gotten out of the way when you finished up with Reinhardt, because I'm going to start rolling them. Go along with me now, and you won't get smashed, Dan. Get out of here, Dan snarled, sitting bolt upright. You gave it to Carl Golden a long time ago when he was with you, remember? Carl's my boy now. Do you think I'll swallow the same bait? You'd be smart if you did, the man leaned forward. I'll let you in on a secret I've just recently had. A vision, you might say. There are going to be riots and fires and shouting, all around the time of the hearings. People will be killed. Lots of people. Spontaneous outbursts of passion. 
of course the great voice of the people against the abomination and against you dan a few repeaters may be taken out and hanged and then when you have won against reinhardt you'll find people thinking that you're really a traitor nobody will swallow that dan snapped just watch and see i can still call it off if you say so he stood up quickly as dan's face went purple new chicago he said smoothly have to see a man here and then get back to the capital happy hunting dan you know where to reach me he strode down the aisle of the ship leaving dan staring bleakly at an empty seat paul paul he met terry fisher at the landing field in las vegas a firm handshake clear brown eyes looking at him the way a four-year-old looks at santa claus glad you could come tonight senator i've had a busy couple days i think you'll be interested remarkable restraint in the man's voice his face was full of things unsaid dan caught it he knew faces read them like typescript what is it son wait until you see fisher laughed nervously i thought for a while i was back on mars cigar no thanks i never used them the car broke through the darkness across bumpy pavement the men sat silently then a barbed wire enclosure loomed up and a guard walked over peering at their credentials and waved them through ahead lay a long low row of buildings and a tall something spearing up into the clear desert night they stopped at the first building and hurried up the steps small red-faced Lijinsky greeted them all warm handshaken enthusiasm and unmistakable happiness and surprise a real pleasure senator we haven't had a direct governmental look-see in quite a while i'm glad i'm here to show you around everything's going along okay eh oh yes she'll be a ship to be proud of now i think we can arrange some quarters for you for the night and in the morning we can sit down and have a nice long talk terry fisher was shaking his head i think the senator would like to see the ship now isn't that right senator Lijinsky's eyes opened wide, his head bobbed in surprise. Young old creases on his face flickered. Tonight? Oh, you can't really be serious. Why, it's almost two in the morning. We only have a skeleton crew working at night. Tomorrow you can see. Tonight, if you don't mind, Dan tried to keep a sharp edge out of his voice. Unless you have some specific objection, of course. Objection? None whatsoever. Lijinsky seemed puzzled and a little hurt. He bounced back. Tonight it is, then. Let's go. There was no doubting the little man's honesty. He wasn't hiding anything, just surprised. But a moment later there was concern on his face as he led them out toward the factory compounds. There's no question of appropriations, I hope, Senator. No, no, nothing of the sort. Well, I'm certainly glad to hear that. Sometimes our contacts from Washington are a little disappointed in the ship, of course dan's throat tightened why no reason really we're making fine progress it isn't that yes things really buzz around here just ask mr fisher about that he was here all day watching the workers but there are always minor changes in plans of course as we recognize more of the problems terry fisher grimaced silently and then followed them into a small whirlwind ground car the little gyro car bumped down the road on its single wheel down into a gorge then out onto the flats dan strained his eyes peering ahead at the spare of the starship gleaming in the distant night lights pictures from the last starship progress report flickered through his mind 
and a frown gathered as they came closer to the ship. Then the car halted on the edge of the building pit, and they blinked down and up at the scaffold monster. Dan didn't even move from the car. He just stared. The report had featured photos, projected testing dates, even ventured a possible date for launching, with the building of the starship so near to completion. That had been a month ago. Now Dan stared at the ship and shook his head, uncomprehending. The hull plates were off again, lying in heaps on the ground in a mammoth circle. The ship was a skeleton, a long, gawky structure of naked metal beams. Even now a dozen men were scampering around the scaffolding before Dan's incredulous eyes, and he saw some of the beaming coming off of the body of the ship, being dropped onto the crane, moving slowly to the ground. Ten years ago the ship had looked the same. As he watched, he felt a wave of hopelessness sweep through him, a sense of desolate, empty bitterness. Ten years! His eyes met Terry Fisher's in the gloom of the car, begging to be told it wasn't so. Fisher shook his head. Then Dan said, I think I've seen enough. Take me back to the airfield. It was the same thing on Mars, Fisher was telling him as the return jet speared east into the dawn. The refining and super-refining, the slowing down, the changes in viewpoint and planning. I went up there ready to beat the world barehanded, to work on the frontier, to build that colony, and maybe even lead another one. I even worked out plans for a breakaway colony. We would need colony builders when we went to the stars, I thought. He shrugged sadly. Carl told you, I guess. They considered the breakaway colony carefully, and then Barnes decided it was really too early. Too much work already with just one colony. And there was, in a sense. Frantic activity, noise, hubbub, hard work, fancy plans, all going nowhere. No drive, no real direction. He shrugged again. I did a lot of drinking before they threw me off Mars. Nobody saw it happening? It wasn't the sort of thing you see. You could only feel it. It started when Armstrong came to the colony, rejuvenated, to take over its development. And eventually I think Armstrong did see it. That's why he suicided. But the starship, Dan cried, it was almost built and they were tearing it down. I saw it with my own eyes. Ah, yes. For the twenty-seventh time, I think. A change in the engineering thinking, that's all. Keller and Leginsky came to the same conclusion that the whole thing might fall apart in mid-air at the launching. Can you imagine it, when the rockets have been built for years, running to Mars every two months? But they could prove it on paper. And by the time they got through explaining it, every damn soul on the project was saying yes. It might fall apart at the launching. Why, it's a standing joke with the workers. They call Keller old jet propulsion, and always have a good laugh. But then, Keller and Stark and Leginsky should know what's what. They've all been rejuvenated and working on the ship for years. Fisher's voice was heavy with anger. Dan didn't answer. There didn't seem to be much to answer. And he just couldn't tell Fisher how it felt to have a cold blanket of fear wrapping around his heart, so dreadful and cold that he hardly dared look five minutes ahead right now. We have a monster on our hands. He was sick when they reached Washington. The pain in his chest became acute as he walked down the gangway, 
and by the time he found a seat in the terminal and popped a nitro tablet under his tongue, he was breathing in deep, ragged gasps. He sat very still, trying to lean back against the seat, and quite suddenly he realized that he was very, very ill. The good red-headed Dr. Moss would smile in satisfaction, he thought bitterly. There was sweat on his forehead. It had never seemed very probable to him that he might one day die. He didn't have to die in this great, wonderful world of new bodies for old. He could live on and on and on. He could live to see the golden centuries of man, a solar system teeming with life, ships to challenge the stars, the barriers breaking, crumbling before their very eyes. Other changes, as short-lived man became long-lived man, changes in teaching, in thinking, in feeling. Disease, the enemy was crushed. Famine, the enemy slinking back into the dim memory of history. War, the enemy pointless to extinction. All based on one principle, man must live. He need not die. If a man could live forty years instead of twenty, had it been wrong to fight the plagues that struck him down in his youth? If he could live sixty years instead of forty, had the great researchers of the nineteen forties and fifties and sixties been wrong? Was it any more wrong to want to live a thousand years? Who could say that it was? He took a shuddering breath and then nodded to Terry Fisher and walked unsteadily to the cab stand. He would not believe what he had seen at Starship Project. It was not enough. Collect the evidence, then conclude. He gave Fisher an ashen smile. It's nothing. The ticker kicks up once in a while, that's all. Let's go see what Carl and Jean and the boys have dug up. Fisher smiled grimly, an eager gleam in his eye. Carl and Jean and the boys had dug up plenty. The floor of offices Dan had rented for work of his organization was going like a Washington terminal at rush hour. A dozen people were here and there, working with tapes, papers, program cards. Jean met them at the door, hustled them into the private offices in the back. Carl just got here, too. He's down eating. The boys outside are trying to make sense out of his insurance and advertising figures. He got next to them, okay? Sure, but you were right. They didn't like it. What sort of reports? The girl sighed. Only prelims. Almost all the stuff is up in the air, which makes it hard to evaluate. The ad men have been figuring what they're going to do the next half century, so that they'll be there with the right thing when the time comes. But it seems they don't like what they see. People have to buy what the ad men are selling, or the ad men shrivel up, and already the trend seems to be showing up. People aren't in such a rush to buy. They don't have the same sense of urgency that they used to. Her hands fluttered. Well, as I say, it's all up in the air. Let the boys analyze for a while. The suicide business is a little more tangible. The rates are up all over, but break it into first generation and repeaters, and it's pretty clear who's pushing it up. Like Armstrong, Dan said slowly. Jean nodded. Oh, here's Carl now. He came in, rubbing his hands, and gave Dan a queer look. Everything under control, Dan? Dan nodded. He told Carl about Tyndall's position. Carl gave a wry grin. He hasn't changed a bit, has he? Yes, he has. He's gotten a lot stronger. Carl scowled and slapped the desk with his palm. You should have stopped him, Dan. I told you that a long time ago, back when I first came with you. He was aiming for your throat even then. 
trying to use me and what I knew about Dad to sell the country a pack of lies about you. He almost did, too. I hated your guts back then. I thought you were the rottenest man that ever came up in politics, until you got hold of me and pounded sense into my head. And Tyndall's never forgiven you that, either. All right. We're still ahead of him. Have you just finished with the admin? Oh, no. I just got back from a trip south. My nose is still cold. Dan's eyebrows went up. And how was Dr. Aviato? I haven't seen a report from Antarctica Project for five years. Yes, you have. You just couldn't read them. Aviato was quite a theoretician. That's how he got his money and his project down there, with plenty of room to build his reflectors and nobody around to get hurt if something goes wrong, except a few penguins. And he's done a real job of development down there since his rejuvenation. Ah, Dan glanced up hopefully. Now there, said Carl, is a real lively project, solar energy into power on a utilitarian level. The man is fantastic, of course, but with his plans he could actually be producing it in another five years. He lit a cigarette and drew on it as though it were bitter. Could? Seems he's gotten sidetracked a bit, said Carl. Dan glanced at Terry Fisher. How? Well, his equipment is working fine and he can concentrate solar heat from ten square miles onto a spot the size of a manhole cover. But he hasn't gone too far converting it to useful power yet." Carl suddenly burst out laughing. "'Dan, this'll kill you. Billions and billions of calories of solar heat concentrated down there. And what do you think he's going to do with it? He's digging a hole in the ice two thousand feet deep and a mile wide. That's what.' "'A hole in the ice?' "'Exactly. Conversion?' Certainly. But we want to be sure we're right. So right now this whole crew is very busy trying to melt down Antarctica. If you give him another ten years, he'll have it done by God." This was the last and most painful trip of all. Dan didn't even know why he was going, except Paul had told him that he should go, and no stone should be left unturned. The landing in New York Crater had been rough, and Dan had cracked his elbow on the bulkhead. He nursed it now as he left the Volta on the deserted street of Crater City, and entered the low one-story lobby of the ground scraper. The clerk took his name impassively, and he sat down to wait. An hour passed, then another. Then— Mr. Devlin will see you now, Senator. Down in the elevator, four, five, six stories. Above him was the world. Here, deep below, with subtly efficient ventilators and shafts, and exotic cubby holes for retreat, a man could forget that a world existed above. Soft lighting in the corridor, a golden plastic door. The door swung open, and a tiny old man blinked out. Mr. Chauncey Devlin? Senator Fowler? The little old man beamed. Come in, come in, my dear fellow. If I'd realized it was you, I'd never have dreamed of keeping you so long. He smiled, obviously distressed. Retreat has its disadvantages, too, you see. Nothing is perfect but life, as they say. When you've lived for a hundred and ninety years, you'll be glad to get away from people, and to be able to keep them out from time to time." In better light, Dan stared openly at the man. A hundred and ninety years. It was incredible. He told the man so. "'Isn't it, though?' Chauncey Devlin chirped. "'Well, I was a was-baby. Can you imagine? Born in London in 1945. But I don't even think about those horrid years any more. Imagine, people dropping bombs on each other?" 
a tiny bird of a man three times rejuvenated and still the mind was sharp the eyes were sharp the face was a strange mixture of recent youth and very great age it stirred something deep inside dan almost a feeling of loathing an uncanny feeling we've always known your music he said we've always loved it just a week ago we heard the washington philharmonic doing the eighth chauncey devlin cut him off disdainfully they always do the eighth it's a great symphony dan protested devlin chuckled and bounced about the room like a little boy it was only half finished when they chose me for the big plunge he said of course i was doing a lot of conducting then too now i'd much rather just write he hurried across the long softly lit room to the piano came back with a sheaf of papers do you read music this is just what i've been doing recently can't get it quite right but it'll come it'll come which will this be asked dan the tenth the ninth was under contract of course strictly a pot-boiler i'm afraid thought it was pretty good at the time but this one ah he fondled the smooth sheets of paper in this one i could say something always before it was hit and run make a stab at it and then rush on to stab at something else not this one he patted the manuscript happily with this one there'll be nothing wrong it's almost finished oh no oh my goodness no a fairly acceptable first movement but not what i will do on it as i go along i see i understand how long have you worked on it now oh i don't know i must have been down here somewhere oh yes it started in april twenty fifty seven seventy seven years they talked on until it became too painful then dan rose and thanked his host and started back for the corridor and life again he had never even mentioned his excuse for coming and nobody had missed it chauncey devlin perfect wax image of a man so old so wise so excited and full of enthusiasm and energy and carefulness working eagerly happily accomplishing nothing seventy-seven years the picture of a man who had been great and who had slowly ground to a standstill and now dan knew that he hadn't really been looking at chauncey devlin at all he had been looking at the whole human race february fifteenth twenty one thirty five the day of the hearings to consider the charges and petition formally placed by the hon daniel fowler independent senator from the great state of illinois the long oval hearing-room was filling early the gallery above was packed by nine o five in the morning t v boys all over the place the criterion committee members taking their places in twos and threes some old some young some rejuvenated some not taking their places in the oval then the other senators not the president of course but he'll be well represented by senator reinhardt himself ah yes don't worry about the president bad news in the papers trouble in chicago where so much trouble seems to start these days bomb thrown in the medical center out there a bomb of all things shades of lenin couple of people killed and one of the doctors nearly beaten to death on the street before the police arrived to clear the mob away dan fowler's name popping up here and there not pleasantly whispers accusations sotto voce and moses tyndall's network hook up last night 
Of course nobody with any sense listens to him. But did you hear that hall go wild? Reinhardt, yes, that's him. Well, he's got to look worried. If Dan can unseat him here now, he's washed up. According to the rules of government, you know, Fowler can legally petition for Reinhardt's chairmanship, without risking it as a platform plank for the next election, and get a hearing here, and then, if the Senate votes him in, he's got the election made. Dan's smart. They're scared to throw old Reinhardt out, of course. After all, he's let them keep their thumbs on rejuvenation all these years with his criteria. And if they supported him, they got named. And if they didn't, they didn't get named. Not quite as crude as that, of course. But that's what it boiled down to, let me tell you. But now, if they reject Dan's petition, and the people give him the election over their heads, they're really in a spot. Out on the ice, on the rosy red. How's that? Can't be too long now. I see Tyndall has just come in, Bible and all. See if he's got any tomatoes in his pockets. Old Moses really gets you going. Ever listen to him talk? Well, it's just as well. Damn, but it's hot in here. In the rear chamber, Dam mopped his brow, popped a pill under his tongue, dragged savagely on the long black cigar. You with me, son? Carl nodded. You know what it means. Of course. There's your buzzer. Better get in there. Carl went back to Jean and the others around the eighty-inch screen set deep in the wall. Dan put his cigar down gently, as though he planned to be back to smoke it again before it went out, and walked through the tall oak doors. The hubbub caught up for a few moments, then dropped away. Dan took his seat, grinned across at Libby, leaned his head over to drop, and aside into Parker's ear. Reinhardt staring at the ceiling as the charges were read off in a droning voice whereas the criterion for selection of candidates for subtotal prosthesis, first written by the Honorable Walter Reinhardt of the great state of Alaska, have been found to be inadequate, outdated, and utterly inappropriate to the use of subtotal prosthesis that is now possible, and whereas that same Honorable Walter Reinhardt has repeatedly used the criteria, not in the just, honorable, and humble way in which it was such criteria must be regarded, but rather as a tool and weapon for his own furtherance, and that for that of his friends and associates. Dan waited patiently. Was Reinhardt's face whiter than it had been? Was the hall quieter now? Maybe not, but wait for the petition. The Senate of the United States of North America is formally petitioned that the Honorable Walter Reinhardt should be displaced from his seat as chairman in the Criterion Committee and that his seat as chairman of that committee should be resumed by the Honorable Daniel Fowler, author of this petition, who has hereby pledged himself before God to seek through this committee, in any and every way possible, the extension of the benefits of sub-total prosthesis techniques to all people of this land, and not to a chosen few. Screams, hoots, catcalls, applause, all from the gallery. None below, senatorial dignity forbade and the anti-sound glass kept the noise out of the chamber below. Then Dan Fowler stood up, an older Dan Fowler than most of them seemed to remember. You have heard the charges which have been read. I stand before you now, formally, to withdraw them. What? Jaws sagging, eyes wide, TV camera frozen on the senator's face, then jerking wildly around the room to catch the reaction. You have also heard the petition which has been read. I stand before you now, formally, to withdraw it. Slowly, measuring each word, he told them. 
He knew that words were not enough, but he told them, only seventy-five thousand men and women have undergone the process at this date, out of almost two hundred million people on this continent. Yet it has already begun to sap our strength. We were told that no change was involved, and indeed we saw no change. But it was there, my friends. The suicides of men like Kenneth Armstrong did not just occur. There may be many reasons that might lead a man to take his life in this world of ours. Selfishness, self-pity hatred of the world or of himself, bitterness, resentment. But it was none of these that motivated Kenneth Armstrong. His death was the act of a bewildered, defeated mind, for he saw what I am telling you now, and knew that it was true. He saw starships built, and rebuilt, and never launched, colonies dying of lethargy, because there was no longer any drive behind them brilliant minds losing sight of goals, and drifting into endless, inconsequential digressions, lifetimes wasted in repetition, in redoing and rewriting and reliving. He saw it, the downward spiral which could only lead to death for us all in the last days. This is why I withdraw the charges and petition of this hearing. This is why I reject rejuvenation, and declare that it is a monstrous thing which we must not allow to continue. This is why I now announce that I personally will nominate the Honorable John Tyndall for President in the elections next spring, and I will promise him my pledged support, my political organization and experience, and my every personal effort to see that he is elected. There seemed that there would be no end to it. When Dan Fowler had finished, Moses Tyndall had sat staring as the blood drained out of his sallow face. His jaw gaped and he half rose from his chair, then sank back with a ragged cough, staring at the senator as if he had been transformed into a snake. Carl and Terry were beside Dan in a moment, clearing away back to the rear chambers, then down the steps of the building to a cab. Senator Libby intercepted them there, his face purple with rage, and Mackenzie bristling and indignant. "'You've lost your mind, Dan.' "'I have not. I'm perfectly sane.' But Tyndall, he'll turn Washington into a grand revival meeting. Then we'll cut him down to size. He's my candidate, remember, not his own. He'll play my game if it pays him well enough. But I want an abolitionist administration, and I'm going to get one. In the cab, he stared glumly out the window, his heart racing, his whole body shaking in reaction now. You know what it means, he said to Carl for the tenth time. Yes, Dan, I know. It means no rejuvenation, for you or any of us. It means providing something, to people that they just don't want to believe, and cramming it down their throats if we have to. It means taking away their right to keep on living. I know all that. Carl, if you want out, yesterday was the time. Okay, then. We've got work to do. Up in the offices again, Dan was on the phone immediately. He knew politics and people, like the jungle cat knows the whimpering creatures he stalks. He knew that it was the first impact, the first jolting blow that would win for them, or lose for them. Everything had to hit right. He had spent his life working with people, building friends, building power, banking his resources, investing himself. Now the time had come to cash in. Carl and Jean and the others worked with him. A dreadful afternoon and evening, fighting off newsmen, blocking phone calls, trying to concentrate in the midst of bedlam. The campaign to elect Tyndall had to start now. 
they labored to record a work schedule listing names outlining telegrams drinking coffee as dan swore at his dead cigar like old times once again and grinned like a madman as the plan slowly developed and blossomed out then the phone jangled and dan reached out for it it was that last small effort that did it a sledgehammer blow from deep within him sharp agonizing pain a driving hunger for the air that he just couldn't drag into his lungs he let out a small cry and doubled over with pain they found him seconds later still clinging to the phone his breath so faint as to be no breath at all he regained consciousness hours later he stared about him at the straight lines of the ceiling at the hospital bed and the hospital window dimly he saw carl golden head drooping on his chest dozing at the side of the bed there was a hissing sound and he raised a hand felt the tiny oxygen mask over his mouth and nose but even with that help every breath was an agony of pain and weariness he was so very tired but slowly through the fog he remembered cold sweat broke out on his forehead drenched his body he was alive he remembered crystal clear the thought that had exploded in his mind the instant the blow had come i'm dying this is the end it's too late now and then cruelly why did i wait so long he struggled against the mask sat bolt upright in bed i'm going to die he whispered then caught his breath carl sat up and smiled at him lie back dan get some rest had he heard had carl heard the fear he had whispered perhaps not he lay back panting as carl watched do you know what i'm thinking carl i'm thinking how much i want to live people don't need to die wasn't that what dr moss had said it's such a terrible waste he had said too late now dan hans trembled he remembered the senators in the oval hall hearing him speak his brave words he remembered reinhardt's face and tyndall's and libby's he was committed now yesterday no now yes paul had been right and dan had proved it his eyes moved across to the bedside table a telephone he was still alive moss had said that sometimes it was possible even when you were dying that's what they did with your father wasn't it carl brave peter golden who had fought reinhardt so hard who had begged and pleaded for universal rejuvenation waited and watched and finally caught reinhardt red-handed to prove that he was corrupting the law and expose him simple honest peter golden applying so knavely for his rightful place on the list when his cancer was diagnosed peter golden had been all but dead when he had finally whispered defeat and given reinhardt his perpetual silence in return for life they had snatched him from death indeed but he had been crucified all the same they had torn away everything and found a coward underneath coward why was it wrong to want to live dan fowler was dying why must it be him he had committed himself to a fight yes but there were others young men who could fight men like peter golden's son but you are their leader dan if you fail them you will never win carl was watching him silently his lean dark face expressionless could the boy read his mind was it possible that he knew what dan fowler was thinking carl had always understood before it had seemed that sometimes carl 
had understood Dan far better than Dan did. He wanted to cry out to Carl now, spill over his dreadful thoughts. There was no one to run to. He was facing himself now. No more cover-up, no deceit. Life or death, that was the choice. No compromise. Life or death. But decide now, not tomorrow, not next week, not in five minutes. He knew the answer then, the flaw, the one thing that even Paul hadn't known, that life is too dear, that a man loves life, not what he can do with life, but every life itself for its own sake, too much to die. It was no choice, not really. A man will always choose life as long as the choice is really his. Dan Fowler knew that now. It would be selling himself, like Peter Golden did. It would betray Carl and Jean and all the rest. It would mean derision and scorn and oblivion for Dan Fowler. Carl Golden was standing by the bed when he reached out his arm for the telephone. The squeaking of a valve. What? Carl's hand, infinitely gentle on his chest, bringing up the soft blankets, and his good clean oxygen dwindling, dwindling. Carl, how did you know? She came into the room as he was reopening the valve on the oxygen tank. She stared at Dan, gray on the bed, and then at Carl. One look at Carl's face and she knew, too. Carl nodded slowly. I'm sorry, Jean. She shook her head, tears welling up. But you loved him so, more than my own father. Then why? He wanted to be immortal. Always that drove him. Greatness, power, all the same. Now he will be immortal, because we need a martyr in order to win. Now we will win. The other way we would surely lose, and he would live on and on, and die every day. He slowly turned to the bed, and brought the sheet up gently. This is better. This way he will never die. They left the quiet room. End of Martyr Part 3 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah VoiceOversByKirk.com End of Martyr by Alan Norse